From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Liz Truss has been, if anything, certainly as bad as Johnson on the populism agenda. She wants people to work hard and she hates people being told what to do. The markets are looking very, very closely at political pronouncements. Together, we can ride out the storm. We can rebuild our economy and we can become the modern, brilliant Britain that I know we can be. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Today, as world leaders prepare to travel to London for the Queen's funeral, we'll check in with some of our global network of Bloomberg reporters to see how the accession of Charles to the throne is being perceived around the world. Plus, is the cap on bankers' bonuses on the way out? We'll look at what the government is said to be considering with our finance reporter, Tom Metcalf. But first, thousands of people have queued through the night to file past the Queen lying in state in Westminster Hall. The queue running for miles down London's South Bank with warnings that waiting times could run as long as 30 hours. Well, we've sent our very own Leanne Gerrins out to speak to some people, doing what she does best, of course, chatting uh, with people in long the queue. Now, this is quite something, isn't it, Leanne? I spoke to a friend of mine who's uh, actually a striking barrister who luckily enough for him is not going to work this week. So he's been uh, in the queue. He queued, for, I think, for about uh, seven hours uh, to get in. What did you What did you find with the people you spoke to? So I went to the queue yesterday before um, the Queen's coffin arrived at Westminster Hall and people were already queuing. The queue was well past the London Eye, if you know the structure of the Thames and how the South Bank goes. And I spoke to so many people and my first question was, you know, the Queen's favourite question, did it take you long to get here? Did you travel far? <laughs> and so many people said to me, Yes, we either travelled from the other side of the country, some people came from the other side of the world, and some people are just people who live in London, but everyone was making an effort to go down there. And I must say that everyone said, we're going to stay here as long as it takes. We're not going to leave this queue. We've made loads of friends. It was a real community feeling. And I felt like it was a really positive atmosphere when I visited people down there yesterday. Yeah, it was interesting. Our colleague Charles Capel queued overnight uh, and he could have documented it on his Twitter thread, which is worth a read for the experience of, as he put it, the Q, capital T, capital Q. Um, what sort of people did you meet then? I found there were a lot of veterans there. And I spoke to a lot of people um, and they were saying, you know, we fought in the British Army. We've been part of that our whole lives. And the Queen means so much to us. And that is one reason we've come, we've come here really to just pay our respects to the duty that she's done for the whole country. So that's why we're prepared to wait as long as it takes. She was here reigning for 70 years. Some lovely lady I met, I said, why are you here? And she just said to me, I love her. And I was like, that, that that's, yeah, that's lovely, isn't it? And then um, I also met a man and he was 
quite moving when I spoke to him, actually. I felt a bit emotional. He had a disabled child who um, Diana had a lot to do with as part of her charity. And the Queen was also involved in that. So people having really personal stories about why they were there, not just the love for the Queen, but also personal connection to the way she touched their lives. Well, let's take a listen to some of those people that you spoke to. We, we, it was just imperative for us. We um, absolutely loved and revered our wonderful Queen. We think she's exceptional, has always been exceptional. She's been a part of my life. I was born in the year she was uh, crowned and I couldn't possibly not have come. A tiny bit of time out of my life compared to what she's given back to us. And uh, being a, a former serviceman as well, you know, I've, I've paid sort of my duty to her and she's paid her entire life of a duty to me. So it's the minimum I could do. Now, interesting watching those pictures. Of course, it's being streamed live, isn't it? Rather fascinating being streamed on the BBC. You can watch people uh, filing past the coffin. Just interesting seeing the diversity of of, of people who really want to go and pay their their final respects to the Queen. Yes, absolutely. The diversity is huge. I met very young people, very young teenage girls who were there because she was like, she was a, a woman in power for so many years and somebody we really looked up to. And then I met the older generation who were born in the year she went through her coronation. So, so mm. many people. And um, Her Majesty's coffin, draped in the Royal Standard, will remain in Westminster Hall until her state funeral on Monday. And that is, of course, what people are queuing up to pay their respects to Leanne Gerrans. Thank you very much for that. Well, the UK is considering scrapping a cap on bankers' bonuses, a controversial move that underlines the new government's determination to introduce major post-Brexit reforms in financial services. The cap, of course, was introduced by the EU in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. It limits bankers' bonuses to twice their salary. Now, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng is said to believe the change would help to make the City of London more attractive. Bloomberg's finance reporter Tom Metcalf is here with us to talk more about this. Tom, this would be a big move for the city, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, certainly it would get a lot of attention. I think, uh, you know, we can have a debate about how substantive it actually is. But for me, the thing that jumps out here is almost like the political side of this. You've had years of the City of London effectively being sidelined in Brexit negotiations. And what you've got now is uh, the new UK government taking on what has long been one of the most toxic sort of topics out there. Long people have just sort of avoided this, whether they would rescind this EU era law and, and seem to be diving headfirst into it. And what that says about ties between the government and the city. City, uh, and, and what this might mean for London's competitiveness, um, yeah, means it's, it's just a really big story. So, Thomas, I guess that's the key question, isn't it? How far will this make the city more competitive? I remember uh, back when this was introduced, there was quite a lot of um, argy bargy about whether this is really going to undermine the city of London, and bankers complained a lot. But in the end, I don't feel like loads of jobs kind of moved to New York, and, and the industry sort of dealt with it, didn't? Didn't they? What, what will this mean uh, for the city's competitiveness? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Look, the City of London adapted to this and it's not, you know, it generates a lot of headlines, a very sort of touchstone issue and and people really get angry about it. But substantively that you know it doesn't change too much you know it's a cap in the idea in the sense that you know a third of this pay has to be fixed which does off put you know kind of massive pay cuts I suppose paychecks in some way I suppose but not really so for me I think it's much more sort of a 
a subtler sense that you know this is the UK government really putting out its stall and saying we will back the city of London and that maybe in a way will help London's competitiveness because bankers will feel hey we are you know kind of being backed here by by the government but I, I don't think for example the removal of this cap in any way means that suddenly you're going to see bankers you know getting paid multiples of what they already are which is already exorbitant right um, it's more just kind of hey, this makes things a bit easier for big global banks to align if they have people in London with what they're doing in New York. And, you know, in a way, it just gives them a bit more flexibility on, on, the, on the back end of variable pay. What does it tell us, though, about this new government stance towards the city, that they're willing to push what could be a pretty unpopular policy in many parts of the country? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Like, psychologically, I think it says a lot about them. You know, the reason this has not been sort of rescinded before is because a lot of politicians, they take a look at that, have dropped it pretty quickly because, hey, do you really want those headlines in the tabloids? And, and I've already been seeing them, I think, you know, kind of unlimited bonuses for bankers. I mean, that plays terribly across much of the country. Um, so I think it's it's fascinating for, I guess, what, not necessarily priorities, but the sense that the City of London is coming back into the Conservative Party's fold and that, you know, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are basically willing to take some sort of, uh, are making the calculation that, you know what, it's worth getting the City of London on side, even if it generates some pretty painful headlines, some pretty painful backlash, not just from Labour, also from uh, people in the Tory party who are already saying the timing on this seems a bit tone deaf. Because mm, would, it be, would it be fair to say um, that uh, under Boris Johnson, the, the city, you know, was not really given a huge amount of attention, was it? Given the, the economic importance that, that it holds to the country, it did seem like the government was like, well, we're just going to leave you guys to it. Yeah, and, and preceding Boris Johnson's through Brexit, that's really where it came to sort of home to roost, where they were, the city was effectively just cut out of the Brexit negotiations. Um, and, you know, once Brexit was done, suddenly, you know, yeah, the government turned around and said, oh, here's an industry that's worth 10% of the economy, our biggest exporter, etc. Let's see what we can do now. The sort of horse has bolted, as it were. Um, so, you know, and I think the, the interesting thing here is Boris Johnson's government did talk a lot about the city and how important it was, but there wasn't really anything substantive on the policy side where they really stuck their neck out for it, I would say. If Liz Truss's new government does follow through with that, and that, this is a big if, it's not going to be easy, um, then you know I think that shows there's a real step change here. Interesting to see some of the reaction to this. Francis O'Grady from the TUC you know, pointing out the contrast with allowing greater bonuses for bankers but not giving pay rises to workers in the public sector yeah no exactly and i mean that is going to be the sort of dialogue here and you know should should credit the ft for this story who came out with it and they had an interesting line in there that the reason they're going to think they're going to have some political cover for it is because it's against the backdrop of this you know presumably enormous energy crisis kind of program that should help alleviate in some ways the cost of living. So I think they're almost trying to kind of push it out at a time when they think they can kind of um, maybe sort of dilute some of those attacks. But, you know, that is a political calculation they're making. Whether it holds will be fascinating to see. Mm, interesting stuff. Well, that's uh, Tom Metcalf. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show. You can read, of course, Tom's uh, finance reporting on the terminal. Plenty of interesting stuff uh, from him. Thanks for joining us. Interesting to start to see some policy ideas emerge from this new government, even during this period of uh, national mourning politics, although parliamentary business is suspended, ordinary business of politics, perhaps not uh, seeing the same uh, pause as we might imagine. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Well, Queen Elizabeth now lies in state in Westminster Hall until her funeral next Monday. The event will be a major gathering of world leaders with some 500 heads of state and foreign dignities expected to attend. Well, as well as commemorating the Queen's life, it'll also be a moment to reflect on Britain's place in the world. And to get a sense of how this change is being perceived around the world, we're joined in studio by our South Africa Bureau Chief Amukhalang Mbatha, our opinion columnist Therese Raphael, and from Madrid by Bloomberg's Charles Penty as well. Thank you to you all for being with us. Amo, can I start with you? How has the change, this the death of the Queen and the accession of, of Charles to the throne, how has that been discussed in South Africa? I mean, you know, there's been expressions of sympathy at the loss of an icon for a nation like Britain and you know there is a sense of empathy in the sense that South Africa lost a global icon itself not so long ago in former President Nelson Mandela so there's a great sense of what that loss represents for a nation but also on the other side there is the sense of you know um Queen Elizabeth II did not necessarily acknowledge some of the impact that colonial history had had in the colonies in sub-Saharan Africa. And there's still the impact of that really showing up in terms of high levels of inequality, segregation, particularly in South Africa, and just, you know, the difficulties in reviving economic activity in a way that is meaningful to all in the country. So those conversations featured really greatly on social media spaces, especially where people were having those kind of debates. But one thing for sure is that for some of the older generations, there is a legacy um, of care and nurture of the constant um, figure that Queen Elizabeth II was, right, and represented to South Africa. I mean, we've had a generation, for instance, in my mom's generation, where we've got a, p- a few people who are named after the Queen. So that in itself represents just how he she held a soft spot in many hearts in South Africa. And now I think as we look to the funeral, um, certainly people in South Africa will be following it very closely. We know that our president himself uh, President Soro Ramaphosa will be attending um, the funeral as well as I think neighboring President um, Zimbabwe's um, Emerson Mnagagwa will also be in attendance. Charles, a little bit closer to home, how, how has the Queen's death been portrayed in uh, being perceived in, in, in Spain, of course, a country with a, a high profile monarchy as well? 
Well, that's right. I mean, Spain, as you, as you mentioned, is a monarchy. It's a very different kind of monarchy to, to, the, to the British monarchy. It's a, it's a much more low-key monarchy. It's a monarchy that, you know, re- returned, uh, you know, in the wake of the uh, death of the dictator Franco, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know as, a, as a mechanism, really, for, uh, you know, uh, for, for a transition, uh, you know, democratic transition here in Spain. Um, and, um, and uh, it's, as I say, it's a, it's a monarchy which doesn't have the same levels of, uh, of, of ceremony or uh, you know, flummery, whatever words we'd like to do, you know, so, you know, to attach to, you know, to the British style. Um, and so, you know, when they, when they look at the, um, you know, in Spanish media looks at, uh, you know, the spectacle in London or in, or in the UK, uh, of mourning, et cetera, you know, they're, they're looking with, with plenty of interest and they're comparing it with their, with their own relationship with monarchy, which is, I would say, much more, uh, you know, much more measured, much more, um, contested, I would say as well. I mean, you know, republicanism is strong in Spain. Uh, you know, obviously there is the heritage of the uh, the Spanish Civil War, etc. You know, it's a uh, you know the monarchy is not by no means seen by uh, you know universally in Spain as a as a as a uh, as a as a good uh, as a good model. Um, that that said, there is you know plenty of interest and plenty of I would say fascination you know with the with the spectacle of of, of the uh, uh, of, you know of the events in the UK. Uh, I should also mention there is a there is a subplot uh, playing out in Spain too, which is that. Uh, you know, Felipe, uh, King Felipe will be going to the funeral or leading the Spanish delegation, but his father will also be going, uh, the former king, uh, Juan Carlos. Um, uh, this is causing some, um, a lot of comment in Spain because uh, Juan Carlos had, uh, well, he's been living outside Spain in the United Arab Emirates since 2020. Mm. He's been surrounded in, uh, in kind of legal some legal questions, etc. Um, you know, it's seen as a, um, you know, he's going at the, at the invitation of the British royal family, but it's a, should we say it's uh, it's uh, it's that's not ideal. It's an awkward moment, I think, for, for you know for, for King Felipe to you know to be seen, um, you know, in, in in London with his father and, and the Spanish uh, Spanish media will be looking for that moment, watching for that photo of you know of King King Felipe with his father in London. Mm. I mean, it, it, there is going to be a lot of intrigue about who who turns up and the conversations that will be had uh, on Monday as well. Therese, Raphael, uh, we have you as our resident American in studio. I hope you don't mind that we're uh, we're asking you to speak up from that point of view. But there is a fascination in the US with the royals, and I'm wondering whether that's going to continue with Charles beyond the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, I think Americans have um, a, a sort of duality in their relationship with Britain. On the one hand, obviously, it, it's a country born of a rebellion against monarchy. Um, and Americans are very proud of, um, you know, what they consider a, a sort of more meritocratic heritage. But they are absolutely uh, fascinated and have been, you know, for, I think, in modern times with, with the monarchy from, you know, Princess Diana's tragic death, um, you know, through to various weddings and celebrations. But I, I also think that the other side of that is, um, I, I mean, it's a curiosity. They're enchanted by it. They're um, dazzled by the, the pomp and circumstance that, you know, Britain does better than anyone else. I think they're puzzled by some of the signs of just deep, attachment that they're witnessing in London right now, the hundreds of thousands that are turning out, that are willing to wait for many, many hours at, you know, some personal inconvenience for many um, to just file past that coffin. And I think that will, you know, I think people are, are, are puzzled about, you know, what she has meant to this country versus, you know, what she stood for uh, globally. And then, of course, um, 
Uh, you know, Charles mentioned subplots. I mean, we have the Biden visit, the a new prime minister here having and some politics her, creeping her, in there. Yes, as well. her first chance to meet a, a meet the American president, and uh, what will that conversation entail? They are going to meet before the funeral, um, and we know they've only spoken by phone. Uh, and a conversation at which you know Biden brought up Northern Ireland. So uh, there's a, a, a lot of a lot going on here. I think. Amo, Amo, you mentioned how Queen Elizabeth had, had a special play, place in some uh, South Africans' hearts. How do you think that, uh, that the new king will change uh, relations and perceptions of the UK and the monarchy? I guess this is the question that could be asked to people from uh, many countries around the world because the queen was uh, seen as you know, so special by, by, by so many people. I think it'll be important for him to really map out what he wants to achieve, particularly when it comes to key economies that have strategically had partnerships with the UK. I mean, I think the UK is one of South Africa's biggest trading partners. So certainly part of the meetings that will be held in and around the funeral will be there to foster and map out and kind of people coming together to say, you know, King Charles, this is what we would like to see happen going forward. This is the level of support that we'd like to see. But also I think when we think about the Commonwealth countries, we've got 56 member states, right? With a lot of people within those uh, countries varying in interest in terms of what they seek to get from the Commonwealth as well. But one thing that I think is front of mind is support when it comes to climate change well ahead of COP27, right? Mm. And Commonwealth has really tried to help some of its member states in terms of dealing with the impact of disasters and and climate um, challenges that they face. So that will certainly be part of the conversations that are unfolding. And just to see the level of commitment that King Charles wants to kind of um, display within the next few few months. Of course, it, with the, the fact in mind that he himself is still grieving, um, I think he'll be, you know, getting a lot more support right now rather than just demands um, right uh, in and around the funeral itself. Charles, does the Spanish monarchy, described as being scaled back, does that provide an alternative model perhaps for what the future of a monarchy could look here if there are questions raised about its future? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion, isn't it? I mean, I mean, we've 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 heard that uh, you know we've read that uh, you know King Charles um, you know perhaps may uh, favour a. Um, you know, a scaled back monarchy. He may try to, um, you know, to kind of trim, um, you know, trim, um, you know, tr- trim it uh, somewhat. Um, I mean, here in Spain, you know, the the, the monarchy is, is very much uh, slimmed down, very much, you know, very much a kind of functional monarchy, if, if you like. And and and, the, and I think the you know the royal family here is is keen not to be seen to be, uh, you know, um, to be too ceremonial, to be, you know, to certainly, you know, they're, you know, very cautious about. Uh, being seen to be um, arrogant and, and you know uh, you know things of this nature, uh, but I think it, it's so different. I think it, it's such a, a different relationship that the countries have with their monarchs. I think, I think in Britain, as you know, as Therese was saying, you know, obviously there's, there's this um, you know fascination with the pomp. Uh, there's this kind of also this kind of deep feeling which people you know are showing in, in, on the streets of London at the moment, or you know the streets of the UK. Um, you know, these are these are things which the Spanish watch, I think, with with fascination. But also, um, I don't think um, you know that you know the, the same level of feeling applies. You know, and, and, I, and I, as I say, in terms of you know the Spanish being a model for um, you know for for the for the UK, uh, I think. Uh, uh, well, it might be, but it's um, they're two very, very different institutions. I think. Um, I think it's a uh, you know the, the you know the model which the British 
uh, monarchy has has developed is 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 on a different level, uh, really, in terms of ceremony and also in terms of the uh, you know the support and attachment that it has from from you know from a large part of the public. Charles Penty, thanks so much for joining us from Madrid, and thanks so much to, to our opinion columnist Teresa Raphael and uh, Amo Ambata, South Africa majority, also joining us in the studio today. Thanks so much, both. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.